Welcome to the Tier One Podcast, bringing you interviews with the brightest minds in the shooting industry. Get unique insights to help you shoot better, survive longer, and outperform your competition. Brought to you by Tier One, the world's best shooting accessories. Welcome to the third episode of the Tier One Podcast. We're racking them up now, and uh, I hope that uh, we can increase the the speed that we put these out at so you can get through this quarantine rubbish a bit easier. Um, today we've got Nick Bazone. Uh, we're very, very lucky to have Nick. He is a competitive POS shooter in the US. He's also currently the um, SNCOIC, so he's, <laughs> which means he's one of the head guys at the uh, US Marines Mountain Sniper School. He's currently a US Marine sniper. Um, so he knows his way around a rifle, and uh, he's been competitive shooting for a while as well. In this podcast, we cover um, what is PRS, how do you get into PRS, how do you train well for it, um, what are the key sort of setups and, and pieces of gear and, and also skill sets that you need to know, and what stuff can you, you kind of forget about and not worry about to begin with. How can you simplify the whole process um, and make sure that uh, when you step up to, the, to that stage, you're ready to go. Um, this is a, I really enjoyed this chat with Nick, actually. I think it's really informative. Uh, it's got a lot of good intel for somebody who's interested in getting into PRS um, or has maybe shot a few matches and just wants to improve. So uh, that's enough chat for me. Please enjoy the interview now with Nick Bazone. But now I've just extended that distance. You still have the same wind calls, you know, or the 22 yeah. at 100 yards. I mean, you still got to make a wind call. Would you, how would you do that a hundred yards then? Would you, would you just like throw dirt in the air and take a guess? Would you look at a flag? Would you use a Kestrel? I mean, Kestrel seems overkill at that sort of close range. Is it? I mean, cause you, you got to think, right? So, I mean, at that point we're starting to get into, let's see here. I'm just going to look at a ballistic app and see what distance I have for a 22 at a hundred yards. So we can talk, you know, intelligently yeah. about it. Yeah. All right, so a 22 with a, a 50 yard zero um, yeah. at 100 yards with a 10 mile an hour wind. You're looking at um, 1.5 up on elevation, right? Mills and a right of 1.2 mills. Really? Okay. What app is so what I'm, app do you use? Um, well, I'm just using one on my phone right now. It's uh, called Straylock, uh, S-T-R-E-L-O-K. And I, it, it's like very um, beginner friendly. And yeah. I use it mainly out of uh, laziness as far as like it's got big <laughs> buttons, easy readout. Um, yeah. I honestly, I use it to store a lot of my, my gun information. Because right. on a Kestrel, you know, I, I can only have so many profiles and so many different ammo loadouts. Whereas, yeah. um, and sometimes I accidentally delete them when I'm updating my Kestrel, so I always keep back up on my phone. Um, yeah. and I, I do it on Straylock too. Yeah. And it it's makes it easy thing. when like a, a buddy borrows a gun. I'm like, oh, here's the dope chart because it spits out a dope chart for you. So. Right, right, right. That's handy. I guess everything is done on a phone. Like it makes sense. Everyone has their phone on them all the time. Like it makes sense to just use that. Yeah, and I mean, even if you don't have a Kestrel, it'll pull weather data from the nearest weather station for you. Right. So, I mean, it's not going to be exact, but, uh, you know, for uh, it, they have a free version. I have the pro version. I think it's like $10. I, I think it's worth it, you know. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially yeah, when I want to like look up um, like quick ballistic charts, you know, I just type in what I need to know on there. Like we, like just now, I'm like, hey, for a 22 at 100 yards for a 10 mile an hour wind, that's a 1.2 mile a wind call, you know. Yeah. Um, even at uh, a four mile an hour, it's still a 0.5. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. I see where. What if you didn't have the chart and you had to make that wind call then? What if, or, or what if you didn't have the the app? You didn't have a, a kestrel. And you were just making a short range wind call. How would you do it? Um, I mean, you could take a swag, right? Scientific wild ass guess. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you there's a lot of different ways. You know, some people, they hold their Kestrel up into the air and they get a wind reading and then they plug that into yeah. their, their, their app, which is a very, you know, at 100 yards, that's a, a very accurate way because you're not going to have like cross winds down no, there. Exactly. Um, it really depends, you know, like sometimes we have different wind formulas. Um, Todd Hodnett has quick wind that people, you know, might be familiar with where they use the, the G1 of a bullet, right? So if my G1 profile, let's say uh, I'm doing my 22, okay? So uh, my 22 has a, a ballistic coefficient of 0.131. So that means it's a one mile an hour gun. So anytime I feel wind on my face, I automatically have to assume that... Um, I need to use quick wind. So it would be like at 100 for a one mile an hour wind, it would be 0.1. Right. 200 would be 0.2. So if I think it's four mile an hour, it'd be, you know, 0.4. And when I actually type four mile an hour into the ballistic thing, it it spits out 0.5. So it's pretty close. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, You know, you could do that. That's realistically where you, what I'm probably doing in my mind, but yeah. When it's like long range distances, you know, you have to look down range and see if you can see anything moving to, you know, scrub yeah. brush, dust getting kicked up, the, you know, veg being blown over a certain direction. And at that point, it's just, you know, years of just looking at it and be like, ah, I think that's, you know, like seven miles an hour. Yeah. If there's mirage, that helps a lot too. But, right. um, you know, you can get a pretty good wind call off a mirage, but sometimes that it's just it gets so thick that it becomes difficult as well for that. Really, really, I've never done that. I've never, I'm not aware of that method. How do you use a mirage for a wind call? So, um, if you're looking downrange in your optic, especially at further distances, you know, even on like a, a hot summer day, right? You're just looking at yeah. blacktop, you can see heat rising off of it. Um, sure. So typically, if you're if you're looking at it and uh, you see it kind of going straight up, you know, like a boil, if you will. <laughs> yeah. You'll see that, you know, it's going straight up and there's no wind. But if you feel a breeze and you're actually looking at it in an optic, you can see it flowing that way. Yeah, okay. Like a current, yeah, in the water. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but the only problem is, is like, so I can see something moving right to left, but what is the value? Is that is that yeah. like a pure three o'clock, you know, three to nine? Yeah. Or is that maybe closer to like a four o'clock or 4.30? yeah. But I mean, those are all tools that, you know, you combine all these things. I get a, I get a reading of my position with my Kestrel, you know, uh-huh. four mile an hour, you know, from the four o'clock. And then I look down range and I still see, you know, right to left. I'm not totally sure of the value, but I'm going to make yeah. an educated guess, you know, based on the terrain that I'm looking at too. Is it a flat field? So the wind's blowing the same. Is there a, a mountain blocking it from that side? Is there a big yeah. thick tree line that might be blocking the wind? Gotcha. Does do, do depressions in the land or like little valleys, do they make a difference to the wind? Do you get it? They do, yeah. I mean, so I had, this is such a stereotypical thing to say, but 
when you look at it, you got to think about it as like if water was to flow across that, how would it flow? Go you ahead. know, the wind's going to do the very similar thing when it hits those different types of micro terrain or, you know, major terrain features. Sometimes yeah. it causes a swirl, you know, weird stuff. Yeah. 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 You get like, if you look at a river, you see little eddies and swirls and uh, like little vortices and things. I guess the same thing happens with, with the wind. Absolutely. Um, it's just you just can't see it, which sucks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You need some smoke or something flowing across. <clears throat> so um, let's start at the beginning. You know, how where did you where did you grow up? How did you get started, and uh, um, how did you get to where you are now? Uh, so I grew up in uh, kind of rural Pennsylvania uh, on the East Coast. Uh, I grew up on the western side of the state. There's a lot of farming. A uh, lot of farm fields of uh, corn, mainly. So I grew up, you know, shooting a pellet gun most of my younger years. Uh, I decided that college wasn't going to be for me. I uh, mm -hmm. decided to join the Marine Corps. I uh, joined the Marine Corps as a 0311 basic infantry. I was a rifleman. I did two deployments to Iraq uh, as an 11. Um, after that, I became interested in the sniper platoon and decided to do the screener for it. So I went through a screener. It was about, let's say it was about a week long. Right. The one I went through. And how it works in a sniper platoon is, is in a normal infantry battalion, you have uh, one sniper platoon. And what they do is they run screeners for people who are interested in it. And once they come yeah. to the platoon, you learn everything that you would learn at school in the platoon. So it's a lot of on-the-job training. So you can have a mix of people who are school-trained snipers and non-school-trained uh, in the platoon and yeah. those guys that have gone through the on-the-job training are just kind of waiting for their turn to go through school right uh, so you know i went to the platoon did a deployment to afghanistan with them uh, came back went through school and from there uh became a sniper right i was actually a school trained sniper then right uh, af after that um i did a stint as a, a combat instructor and then after that, I was the sniper platoon sergeant for uh, infantry battalion. And then from there, I uh, became the staff and CIC and mountain sniper. Right. For the which is what you do now. Yeah, which is where I'm yeah. currently at right now. So what's, when you're a combat instructor, is it, are you teaching, like, is that, do you teach the green recruits how to be Marines? Is that that level or is it like an advanced course? For, for people who are already or are going on deployment or you teach specific skills or is it how does that work so it could be a mix of both right um it's exactly what you described you right. could go to um itb like infantry training battalion and you'll be training um 0311s that just came out of boot camp or yeah. you might end up at you know um advanced infantry marine where right. corporals and sergeants who are squad leaders come from the fleet and get their uh, advanced infantry class so it all depends uh, a lot of times what happens is guys will go to like itb and they'll do you know a year there and then they'll kind of progress over to aitb where they'll start teaching the advanced schools right okay cool okay and then if you and then so so, so those guys once they've been recruits can then decide oh, i quite like to be a sniper and they go through the process you just described yeah, you know, they get to the fleet. Um, I'm not sure how the Royal Marines are as far as uh, what their fleet process is like or how they go into yeah. a 
recce or sniper um, role. Yeah. But for us, it's, you know, that 0311, he goes through boot camp and then goes through uh, infantry training battalion and then he goes to the fleet. Um, yeah. From there, he's like, hey, I want to be a sniper. And sniper platoon's running a screener. And he's like, I'd like to go to that. And he either <laughs> makes the cut or he doesn't. Yeah, for sure. I don't know for the Royal Marines. We haven't had one on yet, but um, we'll have to we'll have to do that. <laughs> we'll have to reach out and try and uh, try and tempt one on. Um, so that's cool. So you've been so you've been in the Marine Corps a while. You're still there, and you're also a competitive PRS shooter, which is like that's your your passion outside of the Marines. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it started off, you know, just kind of going to the desert and shooting with my buddies. You know, unfortunately, in the Marine Corps, you don't always get the amount of shooting in that um, would be required to yeah. stay proficient at our job. Really? Um, yeah, so I, I started reloading and just going out to the desert, you know, with a few friends every now and then and, and shooting out there. And one of my buddies, Phil, he kind of got into competitive shooting and then invited me to go to a, a match down in Arizona and I ended up going to that and kind of caught the bug and it just progressed yeah. from there. And I started to realize that a lot of the things that, um, I don't want to say that I've been taught in Marine Corps wrong or it was just, it was a different way of thinking about shooting. Really? Um, yeah. It, it definitely opened my eyes to different ways to approach things that I might encounter in a combat scenario versus, um, what, I would see like in the competitive shooting and some things don't transfer over, you know, like big gamer bags or whatnot, but yeah. you can easily change out that, that bag for, you know, a day pack or my ruck. Yeah. Um, so a lot of those same skills apply. It was just, you know, realizing how to apply them and, and teach them to other Marines and explain to them that, yeah, this, this might be a, you know, a big bag filled with foam, but this could easily be your day pack and you can use it in the same manner. Yeah, for sure. Was there a lot of crossover? Because it, obviously, I mean, I'm not military myself, but I can imagine you're in a combat situation. You do not have a perfect bench rest to set up and take your shot. You're, you're laying there. You might be in the dirt. You might be in an urban environment and you have to set up as good a position as you can. Right. Is there did that prepare you for the PRS style of shooting where where, it, you know, you want to take shots from different positions or did you have to learn that whole thing again? Um, <laughs> so, you know, when people think of like snipers, they have this perception that this dude, uh, at least before I became a sniper, I was like, these dudes must shoot all the time, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. all they do. Uh, and it turns out, you know, I'd say probably 90% of the job is just watching stuff. You know, how patient can I be? <laughs> um, really? You know, I watch, uh, yeah. And realistically, when we talk about, uh, Marine snipers, it's scout snipers. So you're a scout first. Um, right. And usually you're doing a lot of reporting. So there's so much more to the job than just shooting. And I think that that's where a lot of people kind of make this misconception that um, these dudes are like best shooters in the world. Um, you know, in an infantry battalion, they certainly are. And it's definitely yeah. a different type of shooting. However, a lot of the skills um, from PRS, such as taking a shot under duress and time, um, definitely apply to anything that you might encounter while deployed. Yeah, I think that the closest school that I went to to competitive shooting would probably be urban. Um, urban sniper, you, you shoot off a lot of different types of barricades under time um, with some stress added. So, yeah. and it was definitely the most realistic scenario that I could create as far as you know something that you might encounter while you're deployed. 
Was that was that a military um, course or was that a civilian course, the, the urban sniper? Uh, it was definitely a military course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. And you said there are a couple of, uh, we were speaking earlier, you said there are a couple of competitions that mimic that kind of style. Yeah, so there's the, the Rifleman's Team Challenge, which is actually run by uh, Chaz Bales. Uh, I went right. to that one last year. Yeah, and yeah. it's more of a field-style shoot, a little less um, competition. I don't want to say competition, but PRSE, where you're on a lot of, like, uh, man-made barricades, whereas Chaz's match, the Rifleman's Team Challenge, was more along the lines of, you know, I get to a stage, I have yeah. to find the targets, range the targets, Right. And I'd possibly be shooting off of something uh, natural, like a rock formation or whatnot. And right. then there's the kind of next level up where it's competition dynamics. Um, and, you know, you have like assault stages where one of you has an AR and your partner has a long gun. And you have to, your partner has to take care of your targets and you're dealing with far targets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, Chaz was on the last episode um, and uh, gave us a little bit of an overview of the, of the match uh, that he's putting together. Um, actually, we'll touch on that a little bit later on because I want to ask you about uh, something you're doing for that. But um, so you started competitive shooting. You started with PRS. Why did you choose PRS over something else like F class? <laughs> um, so F class, I, I really don't know that much about it. Yeah. I didn't see the translation of skills and. Um, time spent right. on that whereas you know prs or nrl or any type of kind of um tactical rifle shooting i could easily justify you know to myself as something that would be progressing my skills um for my everyday job as well yeah the P prs as a as a competition what what distinguishes it from other types of shooting competition is you have a time limit. So it's like 120 seconds sometimes. Is that right? To take all your shots? So uh, depending on the match director and, and the stage that you go to, um, sometimes what they'll do is they will shrink the time, make the targets bigger. Right. So, you know, like you feel really rushed and people make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, it's only 90 seconds on the clock and I have just as many right. targets. But, you know, instead of being 2 MOA, it'll be 3 MOA. It really depends on what the match director feels like doing okay. and um, the kind of space that they're working with. So let's say, you know, it's a, a small range. It only goes out to 800 yards. They yeah. might do, you know, bigger targets with a faster time limit or smaller targets, you know, reduced size targets because they only have so much range to work with. So I've yeah. seen all of the above happen at different matches. Okay. So there's a massive variety, really, between matches. Well, it would be boring if you went to the same match every single time. Right, 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 for sure. Okay, so we, we've got our first, I think PRS started here a couple of years ago. I haven't been myself, I haven't shot in it, but it does sound, it sounds like one of the more dynamic types of shooting sport. Because um, you're moving, you're shifting, you're firing position. I've watched videos of, um, uh, is it your buddy Phil Vallejo? Yeah, Phil, him doing his uh, Instagram videos talking about, you know, different types of yeah. training that people can do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've watched it, like, you know, watched him do it off of the different, like, shooting out of a window and then there's a, like, a tank trap and he's shooting off of a tank trap and all this variety. Um, it looks really cool. So how often do you compete in a PRS match? Do you go monthly or is it annually? 
How often do you do that? Um, I, I try to go to one once a month. Uh, okay. I can't always do that with work schedule. Um, yeah. At a minimum, you know, at least go to the club match. Uh, and, you know, we have different levels of matches, too. A lot of times people have a, a local match or a club match where it's only like $10 to shoot and you just compete against other people for fun. And yeah. that's really where most people start um, before they decide to go to a national level match. You know, they, they figure yeah. out what gear works for them, what they need to work on. Um, you know, maybe that 30 6 hunting rifle wasn't the best idea for the competition <laughs> shoot. <laughs> um, I've right. definitely seen some interesting calibers show up um, at club matches. <laughs> oh, it, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, people yeah. show up and you know, just want to see how they, they do against other people and how their gear yeah. works. So it's definitely a good way to get started. Um, and that, that's where most of the people I know started is at club matches. I mean, I guess it is for somebody who's coming to it new, it's a whole new world, isn't it? It's like it's new gear. It's a, it's a um, new style of shooting, like new, new um, skills you've got to learn. It must be a lot for somebody to come in and think, especially if they've just been shoot like hunting and then they go to, to PRS. There's a di- there's a big difference in the gear that you guys use. What would you yeah. what would you recommend as a good starting setup? For somebody who's coming into PRS, I mean, I think you should start with whatever you have, you know. Um, For real, <laughs> yeah. You know, let's say you have a, a 308. You know, there's nothing wrong with practicing with that. Um, yeah. The gun that I practice with the most is my 223 Vulcan. Right. Why? Because it's got great barrel life. Um, it's cheap. You know, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can get yeah. a thousand rounds of 223 um, yeah. for a pretty good price. So yeah. it, it all depends. Especially with, um, you know, who they're competing against, too. If you're just going to a club match and you're competing against your buddies, you know, maybe that hunting rifle will be all right. But if you're definitely looking to get into, like, a PRS-type club match, um, you know, if they have the ability to go and watch a match uh, for the first time, that's a great way to do it. I've seen a lot of new people show up to matches and they just... They're there to watch or they, they help RO a stage, you know, yeah. they'll be, um, let's say they go to a stage and there's a senior dude there and then they'll have a, a new guy that's never shot before and he's just helping keep score. But he gets to watch to see what the shooters are using and he gets to see how it's run. So he has a, a pretty good grasp of what he needs or they need um, coming into the match and the kind of mindset and the preparation that you need for each stage. Yeah. And I've seen, I think I've seen your setup. So you've got like quite a heavy MDT chassis on one of your guns. Is that, is that right? And then um, one of the things I notice is weight is not an issue in PRS or it's like the opposite way around. You, you, you actually want a lot of weight on the rifle, don't you? Yeah. So <laughs> it's kind of funny. You, you think about it, you know, you're like, Oh, I'm going to be in a competition. I probably want like a light gun or something. Yeah, and you get that's the, what you everybody's think. gun. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. gun was like 24 pounds. Yeah. Um, some people's guns do. Um, it was funny cause I actually did, uh, I went shooting with a, a friend, her name's Ray and I let her borrow my gun and she went to pick it up. She's like, Oh my God, this thing's ridiculous. And she's a yeah. shooter. As well. Um, she uses manor stocks, right. but obviously it's, if I can have a gun and I put it on the barricade or in the prone or any, any kind of shooting and I pull the trigger. Yeah. And I can watch my own trace. I'm not even talking about the splash down range. I'm talking about the vapor trail that my bullet makes. 
Right. And if I can watch that go down range and see if I'm about to miss before that thing even hits the target, that's a huge advantage. Really, really. And then you, so presumably you get that instant feedback and you can adjust. Are you allowed to attempt the shot again? So it depends on the stage, right? You can, some stages, you know, you have to shoot the target twice. So let's right. say I'm like, hey, you know, I thought that was a four mile an hour wind call and it, it should have been a six, right. you know, and I shoot and I watch that, that vapor go just sail off the right edge of like, I already know that, hey, I need to hold more off the left side or dial, depending on the type of shooting yeah. you're doing. Yeah. And I make that correction and make that second round impact and move on, you know. Mm-hmm. So for the rest of my targets, I know what my wind call is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's huge, you know. It saved me time, and I, I at least got a correct wind call. So having that heavy yeah. rifle helps a lot with yeah. recoil absorption and being able to spot your own rounds. That's interesting, yeah. Getting that wind call off the vapor trail, that's not something that immediately came to my mind. Um, so that's a... Uh... I can see how that is very handy, making the winkle. Um, you know, that's huge, too. That's not just, like, a competitive shooting thing. That's any type of shooting application, right? So, like, whether yeah. I'm employed as a, as a marine sniper or, yeah. yeah, just shooting steel, right? You know, I know that, hey, I had good fundamentals behind the gun. It recoiled. I still had a sight picture of the target. And, yeah. you know, let's say I'm shooting a lighter gun and I'm not going to catch that, that trace but at least I'll catch splash. You know, yeah. I saw it miss off the right side. I saw it hit into the dirt. Okay, I saw that. I can make a correction now. Yeah, yeah. And how, so this calls, this raises like another question, which is how do you train for this type of thing? How do you, because it's specific, there must be a specific training to PRS. You must have to train under duress or under like a time limit or at different ranges, you know, in sequence. How do you personally train for matches? Um, I actually talked to Phil about this, and we talked a lot about um, isolating training, right? So, right. you know, let's say I go to a, a match and I, I don't do that well on a certain stage. Or I, <laughs> I write that down in my matchbook, and when I get home, I'm like, well, time to recreate that stage as best as I can. Right. And so from there, a lot of times, you know, maybe it was a position that I wasn't good at. It was like high kneeling or something on a certain type of barricade. Well, I'll go home and I will set up that type of barricade. I'll put 10 seconds on the shot timer and I'll give myself 10 seconds to build my position and take a shot. So I'll take that shot, whether I hit or miss, I will do that over and over again. And usually I do it about 10 times and I take a break. So it's right. just muscle memory of me building that same position over and over again and taking that shot. Gotcha. And it, it just kind of isolates that specific task that I'm trying to accomplish. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, you don't need to shoot the whole course of fire to become a good shooter at it. Yeah. Once I start to isolate, well, maybe I'm pretty good in, in the, the low kneeling. I don't really need to work on that as much, but that high kneeling, you know, and then yeah. I go to the next match and all of a sudden my high kneeling, you know, I'm making those shots. It's huge. Yeah. 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 I've seen um, as well, again, from your, from your mate Phil's videos, he's very, very honest and posts his blooper reel, which I thought was brilliant. There, I can see how things can easily go wrong when the when the pressure is on and the time is on, like the magazines dropping out or the bag falls off the barricade. <laughs> uh, I've seen some people just fall apart. Uh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, and I'm talking um, even you know while we're teaching our mountain sniper course too. You know, it happens to professional snipers. You know, they'll be um, shooting off of our rooftop that we have set up on top of a rocket mountain. 
and all of a sudden their bag falls off the front of it and that thing just goes rolling down the mountain. You can just kind of see the, the look of defeat in their face, you know? This is... <laughs> you never get it back. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's gone for the day. Um, but, you know, that realistically has um, consequences too. For sure. Yeah. You know, during a match, it's funny. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, in, in real life, that might be, you know, that dude now no longer has that capability or that the ability yeah. to take that shot because he, he lost a piece of gear. Um, so, you know, at one side, it's like, yeah, that's it, it makes you laugh. But on the other hand, it's a, a very valuable life lesson as far as, you know, making sure all of your gear is with one arm's reach and that you have positive control of it. And at a lot of matches, if you leave something behind, like a tripod or a magazine, they won't count hits until you have that piece of gear back within one arm's Is reach. that right? Really? Yeah. Because what people will do sometimes is like go up to a stage and they'll use the tripod for the first part of it, but then they don't need it for the rest of the shots. So they'll leave the tripod so they don't have to drag it around. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, that seems obvious, but, uh, but they don't like that. They want you to bring it with you if you took it in the first place. Yes. So if you take it, you are you take it away with you for the whole whole round. You own it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. With with regard to like you know dropping the bag and having positive control of all your gear, is it is it sensible to start like tagging stuff to the rifle like like by carabiner or something you know like hooking it on or is that just not allowed or is that just dumb? Well, it, it all depends. So I mean, like some of the gear we start to see now is um you know a bag that attaches to my arca rail so yes. as i transition from barricade to barricade you know i'm not messing with the bag and it can't fall and now my rifle is heavier so yes. you know a lot of benefits to that um in a military application it's you know i might have to transition a lot where i need that bag in the rear now i need it up front so yeah. maybe it's better to have a bag that just straps over the top of the barrel and i can disconnect that and move it around as necessary but right. no, it's not dumb at all. You know, I mean, <laughs> when you go through sniper school, um, we have things called target indicators, right? Um, right? And there's a big, long definition of it. But basically, it boils down to, you know, anything that you leave behind, the enemy can identify you from. Sure. So, you know, like if you leave the firing line and they find a boot ban, everybody pays for it, right? Because they're right. like, oh, there was people here. So, you know, yeah. if you're... <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely you definitely want to keep everything on you nice and tight um yeah. i learned a lot of hard lessons going through different sniper schools as far as you know things being left behind um, yeah. because that might be something that was mission critical too right or the enemy knows you're in the area but for you know prs shooting it it's if you leave something behind all of a sudden now you're missing targets even though you hit because your magazine is you know six feet away or you left yeah. a bag back there yeah 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 for sure yeah, that's interesting. I guess you just develop a sort of a personal discipline around your gear and keep your mind on it. And I could definitely see how when the clock starts ticking, you know, all that stuff goes out the window, though. That's the that's the interesting thing about PRS for me is the timer. Well, um, what happens is people don't go into it with like a game plan, right? They're right. just like they hear that beep and then that's it. It's like, oh, well, I'm doing it live, you yeah. know, instead of kind of thinking about it. So you're watching yeah. the other people in front of you go before you, right? Unless you're the first person on that stage and that it rotates. So like if you're the first person, now you're the second person. Yeah. And so all yeah. the way till you go to the end and then you're the first person again. Um, yeah. So you do get a lot of time to watch other people go through the stage and you're like, wow, that was not good. 
Yeah. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to do what he just did. Yeah. Um, or, you know, you'll see, you'll see like three or four people do really well using a tripod as rear support or using okay. just a bat. Um, so you have a good idea in your mind what you want to do. You're like, Ooh, I, you know, that looked good, but I might just want to change this little thing because I think that'll work better for me or a little faster. Um, yeah. But that's where you, you really see people mess up. You know, I've seen people uh, leave dope on from a previous stage. So they'll have like six right. mils still on the gun and the target's right. at only like 100 yards and that thing's wow. just sailing over the target and they have yeah. no idea. <laughs> they don't even notice, yeah. Yeah, they're like, you know, they're getting frustrated because they just missed that. Oh, they noticed that they missed, but, you know, they don't know why. They're like, you know, it was yeah. a great shot, what happened. And they look at their yeah. turrets and it's six mils up and you can kind of see the look on their face like that's stupid, you know, yeah. so. And now you're under pressure, you've got to readjust. Before yep. the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's crazy. It actually sounds terrifying. <laughs> I gotta be honest. Um, I mean, I went to my first one, and I'm like, you know, I, I'm a marine sniper. I'm gonna do pretty well, and you know, I yeah, tank, yeah. You know? <laughs> um, and just stupid stuff like that, like leaving your dope on your gun, yeah. um, sh shooting in yards versus meters, because in the military yeah. we shoot in meters. But okay. all the competitors are shooting in yards. So oh, I think right. my first match, my Kestrel was still in meters, you know, and I'm like, I don't know why I'm hitting high on everything. Um, yeah. It's something as simple so, as that. Oh, yeah. And people, it's just something that people overlook. That's easily done. That's There's so many settings. That is easily done. So do you have a checklist now before you get up to the stage and before you even arrive at the thing? Do you like, you know, check in your turrets, you check in your Kestrel and, and all that sort of stuff? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the first thing I do, uh, I get to a new stage, I listen to the stage brief. And, you know, uh, a lot of times you have your matchbook, but sometimes they'll be like, hey, you know, target four uh, broke. So, you know, we're using this target now. Here's the new distance. So I have a little armband that I write all of my targets down on in the order that they're supposed to be shot and the amount of times they're supposed to be shot. Okay. So it's just literally just like a little quarterback, you know, is what we call football. Um, yeah armband <laughs> yeah. so you can write on there with a, a grease pen you know target one 400 yards and my dope is you know 1.4 um, yeah. and the wind call for a four mile an hour and yeah. i need to shoot that two times and you know i just put down the order of my targets um, okay and then you can kind of rehearse that in your head before you even step up oh absolutely and then i'll, I'll get on my my um you know whatever i'm using if i'm using binoculars or if i'm using my spotting scope and i'll look at each target and memorize where it's at Okay. Um, and usually what I try to do is I try to find some type of landmark or big visual object that I can easily just identify naked eye. So like, okay. let's say target one is at 400 yards, but it's got this giant bush next to it. I'm like, yeah. okay, bush. I know I can boom, go right to the bush and yeah. then search for the target. Cause you see people, they'll get lost in the scope, you know, they'll be yeah. all the way at like 21 power magnification and they're looking down range and they're, they're just eating time and they can't find yeah. this target. So, yeah, you know, yeah. low power, find a big mar landmark, you know, whether it be a road intersection, a big bush, you know, a group of trees that sticks out to you, you know, a burn barrel that's down there. There's always something down there that's next to this target that, you know, you can use to help you identify. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So big picture and then zoom in on the target. Um, I guess that's just about like rapid target acquisition because you've got to go from that first one to the next one to the next one and the next one and just keep it smooth. That's the sense that I get from it anyway.
Yeah, absolutely. And, and then when you, you start to do that and you, you kind of start off dialing. I know I did just because uh, of the background of, you know, in the Marine Corps, it's like always dial your dopes. Yeah. You know, even though I'm transitioning targets. Well, now it's starting to get to the point where, you know, that's eating up some time. And the reticles in our scopes have progressed to the point where, you know, I don't even need to dial anymore. Sure. Right. So if I'm at, you know, 1.2, 2.5, I mean, I'm literally just using the reticle in there and I'm using holdovers and I'm transitioning between targets without ever dialing. It's, yeah. If you know what you're doing, it sounds quicker. Yeah. But I've also seen people bomb it, you know, and I've definitely <laughs> a few times where, you know, I forgot that I didn't dial it. And I yeah. just put it on that center reticle and send yeah. it. It's, it's like three mils low. And I'm like, that was stupid. Yeah. So. Yeah. Easily done. Easily done. So do you, so you said there's, there's obviously some good crossover, like what you learn in PRS uh, helps you in what you do in your job, you know, in the military. Um, I think that, oh, go ahead. No, that's all right. That's what, that's kind of what I was going to ask. Like what, what are those things? Like what has helped you? Um, the biggest things that I've taken away from it are time management. Okay. Um, how fast can I build this position? How steady can I be? And then how quickly can I engage targets from my field of view with where I'm at, with the gear that I have? Yeah. And, and that, that was absolutely huge and definitely wind, right? The more I shoot, like every round yeah. I send down range is, is more and more training, right? So, you know, just you're constantly improving your, your wind reading abilities, your, your fundamentals. Yeah. Um, I think that was the biggest takeaway was just time management. Right. So, you know, if I'm supporting some type of maneuver element and I'm running up to a rooftop to, to support them and I need to build this position quickly and start identifying and engaging targets, you know, that, that skill set transitions very quickly. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, I think where the big crossover is. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's speeding up the whole process, making it smoother. And being comfortable in that timeline. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it, that's a crossover across a lot of sports. You know, you see the pros in any sport make it look easy because they're smooth and they're calm and they're, you know, they've got it all under control. And it looks so easy. And then you, you try and do it, or I try and do it. I know for a fact. You look like an abortion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's terrible. And I'm trying to sweat and then something, you know, I'd knock the thing over or I'd break something or, you know, because you panic. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, you start making stupid mistakes. Yeah. But I mean, that's the difference between, um, you know, an, an amateur or a professional, you know. Yeah. yeah. And that's something we, we've talked to our students about, too, you know, just because our round allocation, you know, let's say as a platoon, they get 2000 rounds every quarter. Right. Yeah. Um, so 2,000 rounds divided by, let's say, 10 shooters. Yeah. It's not a lot of ammo. No, no. You know? No. And they're like, well, yeah, it's, it's enough. You know, we go out and shoot. I'm like, all right, all right. So I'm like, last year I put um, 1,800 rounds on my 223 barrel. Right. Do, do you guys think that's a lot? I'm like, that's, that's almost the same amount that you get in a quarter that I shot by myself on my 223. And they're like, yeah, that sounds like a lot. I'm like, that means that I practiced 18 times. Wow. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a lot. Yeah. No, you know, and if a professional athlete was like, hey, I, I practiced 18 times this year, you'd be like, you're a joke, you know. That's <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for the Olympics. Yeah, yeah. right? So when, when you think about it and you put it into perspective, yeah, it's like, 
the amount of ammo that, that some of these guys are shooting professionally. Like I know a guy that shoots about 400 rounds a week. Wow. Okay. Well, and he, he also, he's also winning a lot too, you know? <laughs> so. yeah, that's, that's weird. That's a strange correlation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, it sounds pretty physical as well. PRS. Do you have to be fairly fit to be good at PRS? No. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. You, you definitely don't. Cause I've definitely gotten, um, humbled by some people that are probably not the most physically fit but okay. they can shoot really really well um if you start looking at like the competition dynamics ones where you, you are hiking to each stage where there's like a mile two miles in between each stage yeah. or like the mammoth sniper challenge where the your the round count isn't necessarily as high um you know we're in like the like the 60 to 100 kind of area round count but there's a lot of movement and your your movement speed counts towards your overall score then yeah, yeah, those types of competitions, it's sort of like your physical fitness um, yeah. definitely comes into play. Right. What sort of uh, gear is essential for PRS? Because I've seen you guys using really interesting, like, you know, all sorts of different rests. You know, Chaz makes three or four different bags, um, all of which he's used in PRS for different things. Um, you've got different requirements from uh the scope mount like we were talking about earlier and we'll touch on that as well probably a bit later um but what is essential if someone's getting into prs what do they need to bring with them uh and do they need to be comfortable with that gear before they show up uh, i mean it's such a broad question right um For real. you don't know what you don't know until you you figure that out real quick on the line yeah. um so i, I I think that what most people need going into it is, you know, a rifle that they have um, a good zero with. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But the, most of all, it's just a good attitude. You know, you're, you're going to okay. get humbled when you go to your first match. And yeah. that's where you're really going to learn what you need as a shooter. Because, um, you know, I might really like a certain bag. And then Chaz, you know, he's like, well, I hate that bag. You know, I don't use it. And I'm like, this is my favorite bag. And I've gone back and forth with Chaz about, things I want in a bag and things that he thinks should be in a bag. So, and I mean, yeah. that's definitely a relationship between me and him where we talk about, you know, what do we think that most people would want in a bag? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, I can't say specifically what um, somebody should go out and buy right off the bat. I think that that's the beauty of also going to the, the, like a club match is people have that gear there and you're like, Oh, Hey, can I try that bag? And you're like, wow, this really worked for me. Or, you know, I didn't really like the way that felt or how it handled. Okay. So, um, yeah, you definitely need a rifle with a scope that has adjustments, yeah. uh, you know, and, and get some practice with it. You know, there's plenty of information online, you know, yeah. just looking up, you know, PRS and seeing what they're doing and then go to a club match. And I know that that's in the UK. Um, I'm not super familiar with your laws, but yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, if you go to a match and see what people are doing there, especially I know that they have a PRS match going in um, um, Scotland, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's so yeah. definitely that. Uh, and then me and you talked about, you know, the, the 22 matches that are kind of right. becoming pretty popular in the, the U.S., um, mainly because it's very cheap and you don't need that much space to shoot it. Uh -huh. um, kids can do it, you know. Uh, and it's more of like a, a fun thing. Yeah, you can still win the NRL 22, but yeah. a lot of people are interested in that just because it's not as, I don't want to say intimidating, but it's definitely easier to get into. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cheaper as well. Definitely Significantly. Cheaper. Well, it depends, you know, some people. 
drop I guess, you know, as much yeah. into their 22 as they would their competition rifle. Yeah, yeah, true. Some people go nuts, yeah, for their air rifles as well, yeah. Um, I guess you could do an air rifle PRS here in the UK. Like, I hadn't thought of that, but... Um, so they do. That's actually part of the NRL 22 is uh, they have an air gun class. Right. I'm not familiar with it, though, so... No, no. Well, if you if you can play with the big toys, why would you why would you play with the air rifles? <laughs> well, I'm not, you know, I have um, lots of guns, right? But you yeah. know, I go shoot my twenty two all the time. It's great, great practice. Yeah, yes. I don't feel bad yeah. about shooting five hundred rounds of it. You know, it only costs me true. like twenty bucks. Um, yeah, true. And that barrel's gonna last forever. But you know, I still get great wind calls from it. All the fundamentals are the same. You yeah. know, there's no recoil, which is nice for training. Um, so you don't like build bad habits, you know? Yeah. When we were talking earlier as well, just get back to the training. You said um, there was this a good technique for people to learn to shoot better in PRS and, and under pressure would be to time themselves for, per shot, like 10 second per shot. Can you explain that again? Yeah. Um, what I like to do for a lot of different um, – barricade or even paper drills at a hundred um just if i want to check to see if my fundamentals are starting to slip you know it happens yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Start slap the trigger or whatnot um yeah. let's say at 100 yards you know i'll put up a paper target and it's got um five zeroing diamonds you know just one inch diamonds that i can pick a point on them and hey that's my target so yeah. you know i'll be standing behind the gun the gun's in the prone down there i'll set the shot timer for 10 seconds you know put on a five second delay so i can stand up and put my shot timer on my pocket and it goes off and I drop down to the prone and I have 10 seconds to take a shot. Um, so, you know, I have to build my, my perfect prone position, um, in 10 seconds and take that shot. And then after that too, even after I take the shot, even though I know I'm only taking one shot, I still keep that trigger pinned to the rear and I observe the target, you know, where did that hit? Did I jerk that? Um, you know, when I call the shot mentally, I'm like, Hey, that broke, you know, 12 o'clock inside the diamond. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And when I look down range, like, Hey, it's a little high in the diamond, but I still kept it in there. I'm like, all right, cool. You know, I knew yeah. that I, I called that I pulled it a little bit and that's huge for shooters, you know, to be honest with themselves. Was that a bad yeah. shot or was it a wind call? You know, yeah. did, did you jerk it off the target down range yeah. and, and shooting at paper really helps you kind of develop, you know, <laughs> it doesn't lie. You know, it tells you, you messed that up. There's no wind to blame. That was all you. So yeah. I do that over and over again, just 10 seconds, you know, and yeah. then I'll, I'll put a barricade up and I'll shoot the barricade at a hundred yards of paper and I'll practice like that, building yeah. my barricade position. And I mean, you, you really see how nasty you kind of shoot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Barricade, you know, shooting steel is one thing, but the paper can really uh, tell you a lot about you as a shooter. It doesn't lie. Yeah, for sure. Does it help to have a buddy, you know, have your mate there watching and, and being quite strict as well with you? Like, cause it's easy to lie to yourself, isn't it? Um, yes and no, right? So some days, like, I just don't want to be bothered by anybody. <laughs> and I just go out yeah. there and I shoot myself. Um, but when I want to actually, like, practice and train, it's great to have a buddy there. Because one, you know, they're watching you and they're talking shit to you. Obviously, mm -hmm. you know, telling you that you suck as a shooter. Because um, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm obviously shooting with other Marine snipers, so. Yeah. Um, you level each other shit. It's the law. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it is, it is nice to have that, especially when you start to you move away from the paper. You're like, Hey, I know my fundamentals are good. I've been doing paper drills, you know, a couple times now I have a great zero. I'd like to see how I do at distance. And you know, when you're shooting at distance, 
you know, I have steel targets, so it's easy, you know, to tell if I hit or not. But for some sure. people, some whatever they're shooting at might not be as easy to tell, um, you know, if they have an impact or not, or even where they impacted on the target, you know. So a lot of times I'm shooting with my buddies, um, and you know, we're shooting steel and it's on a gong. And sometimes, you know, they're just I don't want to say they're newer shooters, but they're marine snipers. So, you know, it's like if it's a hit, it's a hit to them and they move yeah. on. But like where you hit on that steel is a big deal to me now. So it's like, yeah, I, I hit that target. That was a man sized target, you know, in the Marine Corps. Um, and he went down. Now I'm moving on. But yeah. in PRS or competition, it's like, oh, I saw that hit right edge. Maybe that okay. wind call wasn't quite bold enough, you know. So my next target, I know I need to make that wind call bold. So if you know I hit that gong and it twists to the right like real hard, I'm like, Oof, that wind call was a little weak, right. you know. Especially if that's the same target, like it's a stage where you have to shoot the same target over and over again, but just change positions. Yeah. You know, next time you're like maybe instead of left edge, you're holding point two off the left side, you right. know. Um, so it really matters where you're hitting on there, as well. So having a buddy, you know, to be able to watch that and like, hey, did you catch that? Yeah, I saw it hit right edge. Okay. You know, that's and that's just you being, you know, a, a double check from your buddy, like make sure you're you're keeping your fundamentals good, especially on something like a barricade or a tripod where it's real easy to let those fundamentals slip. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, it's a little handicap, right? It's like makes everything easier for you. Um, so, go, so yeah. So going back to, you were saying about you, you're, you're doing like, the two types of training you're doing are like isolation training. So you, you've done a match and you know that there's something that you didn't do great at. You go and practice that and you get the muscle memory right. And then the other thing is you're doing short range paper drills under time or under duress or where, where you have like you start with a standing position, hands over your head and you get down and you set up a good prone position. You take the shot. That sounds like you're building muscle memory as well. So is muscle memory like crucial to good performance in PRS matches? Yeah, I, I mean, I, it has to be, you know, um, even though let's say, you know, I come up to a barricade and it's a pallet, right? <laughs> um, yeah. What I use most of the time is a pallet that I've modified and I slide it over to T-posts or E-stakes and that's my barricade, right? Okay. Um, but I go to a match and it's a concrete wall with a hole in it, but it's roughly four feet high. Well, yeah. is that hole really any different than the barricade I shot at off of sure. when I was practicing? Sure. No, it's not, you know? Yeah. Um, so having that muscle memory, I'm like, I know how to do that. You know, that's a high kneeling. This is what I need. I need this bag and I need my tripod as rear support. Or if it's yeah. a limited gear stage where I can only use one bag, I'm like, well, this is the bag I'm going to use for that. It's It works the best for this type of shooting. Okay. You know? So there are so. stages where they say you can only bring certain gear. Yeah, and a lot of match directors are starting to, to really restrict the types of gear that people are using, you know, because if I go up to a, a certain stage and I just use a tripod on every stage, is that really challenging anybody? Sure, sure. You know, if yeah. everybody cleans that stage, it's like, well, obviously the stage is really easy and it's not challenging anybody. And it's kind of defeating the purpose of, like, the sportsmanship of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, the versatility. How many stages are there normally in a competition then? Um, it depends if it's like a one-day match or a two-day match, but uh, typically like ten stages a day. Okay. So, do you do you still uh, need to? Be, I guess this you've answered this before because you said every stage is different. But do you need things like the ballistic apps? Do you need the kestrels? Do you need all that variety of gear to do this, or is it not really, or is it different every match? Uh, it depends on the level that you want to compete at. 
Okay. So if I go to a match and I came from, uh, let's say I live in, in Scotland, right? And I have plenty of distance yeah. to shoot. So yeah. I can shoot from 100 meters to 1,000 meters. And yeah. I have all of my distances in 25 meters, and I have that on a little armband. You know, yeah. do I need a Kestrel for the match that I'm going to? Probably mm. not, you yeah. know, um, especially if it's, you know, in Scotland at a similar elevation with similar sure. atmospherics, you know, yeah, sure. you know, you'll be fine. But, you know, know if, yeah, let's say, you know, I live in Northern California and I'm at 7,000 feet elevation and I zero my gun up here and I practice up here. Well, now I go to a match in Phoenix and yeah. it's at like 200 feet elevation. Right. You know, I, I have a huge um, atmospheric change. And my Kestrel automatically updates that for me. So yeah. my Kestrel detects that and it's like, hey, this is your new dopes. And, you know, as a sure. military shooter too, that's that's the way we rely on it. Yeah, we have hard data. This is what my gun does at yeah. this um, atmospherics, you know. But let's say, you know, I deployed Afghanistan. That's completely different atmospherics. And my Kestrel automatically updates that for me. So really? depending okay. on the level of shooting that you're doing, you know, if you're going to a club match, you'd probably be fine. But yeah. With the availability of free ballistic apps on it, like everybody has a cell phone in their pocket. You sure. know, there's no reason that you can't download a ballistic app like Straylock or um, Applied Ballistics or Hornaday's yeah. a free app, uh, Ford Off. You know, those are free. You can download those yeah. and they're going to give you a good ballistic uh, equation for that firing solution. It's why would you not use it? Yeah, yeah, of course. I guess it's just if you're trying to be a purist or or if you're a masochist, <laughs> or you like maths. <laughs> well, I mean, even hunters. I mean, we see hunters in the U.S. now just, that's prolific. You know, I have this Kestrel. Yeah. If I'm going on a $5,000 hunt, yeah. why would I not take a Kestrel? Right. You know? Yeah, yeah you don't I'm want to come away empty-handed. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, you know, they have their good 100-meter or 100-yard zero. Their Kestrel set up perfectly. You know, they lays that, that bighorn sheep at 600 yards. That Kestrel yeah. spits out that that correct firing solution, you know yeah. that's that's a trophy hunt right there. Yeah, yeah, it seems too easy. But if I'd paid five grand, I'd want to hit the bastard as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, what's seven hundred dollars for a Kestrel if you're paying five grand for the hunt? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I mean, that also applies for varmiting too. You know, people dealing with varmints that are only at a hundred yards. You know, it's yeah. still that twenty-two. You know, my 22, I need 1.5 mils of, of elevation to hit something at 100 yards. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's a, you've got to get familiar with so many different functions of shooting uh, to really start to excel at PRS. And it's got to become natural. That's the feeling I'm getting from this discussion, you know, is it takes time to grease grease the wheels or, or whatever, you know. Um, so that when you step up to that stage and, and the clock starts, you're comfortable with the gear you have. You're comfortable in different shooting positions. Um, you don't have to double think it because you're under pressure now, and you're gonna you're gonna balls it up. Yeah, I mean, realistically, the only thing that I should be thinking about is, do I have the right dope on my gun? What's the wind doing? And where is the target at? Right. Dope, wind, target. Making notes. <laughs> 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 Chaz, I should tell you, Chaz is Chaz is the owner of Warhorse Development. He's on the previous episode, and um, he did invite us to come and shoot the match. And uh, I thought, yeah, uh, one, I'm not sure I can get over there anyway because of this damn virus. But 
oh my god putting myself on the line in front of all you guys not a chance <laughs> you know not a, a lot chance. Of they have uh, train ups too you know so right. they're trying to encourage new shooters to you know enjoy the match so a lot yes. of matches are starting to be like a one day train up beforehand where some of the um, you know more seasoned shooters are available there and they run you through you know a few simple drills and kind of like mindset and preparation for different stages that you might encounter and just different ways of thinking about you know shooting off of stuff and making sure they have a good zero and that they understand um, why they have that cash flow and how to use it and how to kind of apply it to different scenarios and that, that's yeah. really starting to help people a lot you know it kind of removes that intimidation too it's like well you know i just got like a train up too so you know, yeah. hey, this is my first match. I at least came to the train up. You know, I'm, I'm willing to learn. I just have to have an open mind. Yeah, it's a good point, actually, because you're running the train up, aren't you? At, um, at yeah, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So what are you going to cover in that in that day? Is it a day's course? Yeah, it's a day's course. And, you know, you try to limit it to be like right around 100 rounds because people already have to bring, you know, 200 to 250 rounds for the match. Yep. So it gets expensive. Um, and a lot of people barrel life is a big deal, but, uh, what we're going to cover, you know, just at the beginning is kind of obviously range safety, but after that, um, some natural point of aim, making sure that everybody has a good zero and then yeah. probably get into some paper drills at a hundred, uh, off the prone. After that, we'll move into barricade drills at a hundred and then tripod drills. Uh, after that, we'll finally push out to, distance on steel, prone, barricade, and tripod, and right. then talk about, you know, um, target acquisition and kind of how to break up the range and find those targets. And I mean, that's, that's pretty much a day right there. Yeah. 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 That's uh, I can imagine that would take up a lot of time. How many people were attending the uh, train up in this case? Uh, he limited it to 16 and it filled up within, I think the first day. Wow. Really? It being open. Yeah. So, I mean, I just, we would open it to more people, but I can only, you know, help so many people at one time. And I have two other people yeah. helping me, you know, great dudes, Nick uh, Godarzi and Josh Reeves. Yeah. Um, I've known Josh Reeves for a minute now. So, uh, PRS has been around, we, 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 obviously, I'm conscious we're using your time now, you've got stuff to do. So, we'll just cover a couple more quick things. P PRS has been around a couple of years, but it's reasonably new, it's growing. Um are there what developments are happening in PRS in terms of the gear or um, where the sport is going? Can you see it grow, continuing to grow? For example, um, is it changing at all? Um, from what I've seen, I've seen the you know the NRL twenty two starting to explode a lot, um, kind of like an offshoot yeah. of it, yes. just because a lot more people can get into it. It's cheaper. It's easy for them to get into. It's not as kind of um, cost intensive. I guess yes. Yes. Uh, I know that a lot of people are talking about, you know, maybe doing different divisions inside of PRS or NRL talking about maybe weight classes for rifles, some kind okay. of restrictions on weight. Um, none of that's official. I haven't seen it yet at a match. Um, I know that it's been talked about and there, there's always going to be, you know, growth in any sport. Um, it's just waiting to see what comes out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's an ever shifting landscape. I guess. Um, so, so what's a reasonable budget? Now, this will be the last question and I'll ask you uh, what you're always to live by and we can wrap it up and I know you've got to get on with your day. So if, if somebody is coming into PRS 
for the first time, and most people in the UK will be doing that, what's how, what should they budget for for a decent setup, for a reasonable setup? Uh, I mean, that, that depends on the person, you know. Is he a doctor or is he a farmer? Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I also don't know what, what rifles you guys have available to you over there. You know, well, hunting um, rifles, we get the Ruger Precision. Uh, okay. yeah, I mean, the Ruger Precision, you can't go wrong with that if that's available to you guys, you know. Yeah. But whatever weapon or, you know, uh, rifle, sporting rifle, if you will, sure. um, they decide to choose, just practice with it. You know, uh, what people tend to do is they'll dump all this money into high-end gear instead of just practicing with what they have. Yeah. You know, who's really good? A guy who shoots 50 rounds with his $5,000 setup or a guy who shoots 500 rounds with his, you know, $300 setup? Yeah. Um, Do you know, that's really, it's a good, it's a really interesting thing. Out of three interviews, that's been the answer all three times. It comes down to how much you practice rather than, you know, how expensive your rifle is. So that's, um, yeah. that's, that's cool. So to close it out then, um, well, I'm asking everybody this. What, do you have like uh, words to live by, we call it, but it's like an ethos or like a, a spirit of, you know, how you go about life and it's just taking it away from the technical and getting profound for 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, we, we pretty much hit it right there with what I talked about. You know, I'd rather see somebody train with what they have and, and become a master of that than yeah. go out and spend a ton of money on, you know, a new scope, a new chassis. So train with what you have, become good yeah. at it. You know? And that's, that's really what's going to make you successful if this is something that you, you are interested in becoming um, yeah. a shooter at. You know, there's, there's so many training tools out there that are free that people have access to nowadays with the internet and they just, they just don't take advantage of it when you know, they're like, well, I, I just need more expensive stuff. You, know, you can only buy so much skill before you really yeah. have to start training. At the end of the day, you have to master what you have. And if you don't, then you're not going to be successful. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, well, that's uh, that's great. I think a lot of people will, will gain a lot from that, Nick. That's awesome, man. Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and um, expertise. Uh, that was really cool. Where can um, people find you, if you want them to find you, on, uh, <laughs> on the internet? Um, if you don't, we'll just cut it. <laughs> no um that's fine people can find me on instagram my name's nick bazone on there and if they have questions you know they can ask you've been listening to the tier one podcast brought to you by tier one makers of the world's finest rifle accessories find out more at tier-one-usa.com and tune in for more great insights on the next episode